0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful, life-changing message that confronts us in the Word of God, that though we were sinners and lost and dead in our trespasses, you chose by your wonderful mercy to redeem us, to bring us to life, to call us your own, and we call you our Father today. And I pray, Lord, today that you would send your spirit upon us, that you would anoint my lips, that I might speak under the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would send your fire from heaven to purify our hearts and to motivate us and to move us to become renewed in our passion for you, renewed in our passion to serve you in the places that you have planted each one of us. And I pray today, Lord, that that every thought that might be raised up in our minds against the knowledge and the authority of Christ would be subdued, that we would hear your voice from heaven above all else, and the Holy Spirit would bear testimony in our hearts that we're hearing your truth. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Missions is not about raising money. Missions is not about programs. Missions is the natural outcome of people who love God. And those who would want to divide and say, well, missions is some little category of the life of the church, have totally missed the message of the Bible. For the message of the Bible is that the consuming and wonderful love of God that has touched our hearts moves us to serve Him wherever He has planted us. Let let me just remind you how our journey goes in loving God. You know, before we knew Christ, and you know this, we did not love God. In fact, the Bible says we were enemies of God. We were living in hostility with God. And yet in His mercy, He delivered us and He saved us. And somewhere along your journey, if you are a believer today, the the, the Holy Spirit gave you that light and you saw your sinfulness and you confessed Christ and you offered your life up to Him and your first testimony was what God has done for you. And the problem is there are many Christians that are still living on this plane. What is God doing for me? I remember one Christmas I handed my daughter a present from her grandmother. And I said, honey, this is from your grandmother. And she opened it up and she said, I don't like it. And I said, well, now let me get this straight. This is from your grandmother. You know, You need to like this one. And she said, I still don't like it. It's the wrong color. It's not what kids are wearing today. And so I realized something, that children look at the gift and not the giver. And children in faith have a view of Christianity, which is what is God doing for me? Is he answering my prayers? Is he moving in my life? Is he providing for me? Now, that's a wonderful stage, but God calls us to move forward, does he not? To come to an understanding of his glory and his character and his majesty and to love him and be devoted to him for who he is. To move from centering on the gift to look to the very giver himself. One day, a lady in the American church that I was pastoring, an ARP church a number of years ago, called me up and she said, I'd like to give you a television. And in those days, uh, you know, we just had a little small TV in the house, and I thought, this is great. You know, I'll be able to watch football while the other people want to do other things. And so I went to her house, and she took me down into the basement of her house, and under some uh, other storage things, she pulled out a television that was about this size. It was probably made in 1959 or something. It had a screen about this big. It was dusty. I didn't even know if it worked. And everything in me wanted to say to her, I don't want it. But then I looked into her eyes and I saw this sparkle of excitement and I thought, you know, I thought when I said to my daughter, it's, it's not the gift, it's the giver that's more important. And I looked into her eyes and I took that television, I thanked her for it, and I took it and put it in my own basement because I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> but you know, God often gives us gifts that we don't want, does he? Has your life gone the way you mapped it out in college has your life gone the way that you thought it should go? Have there not been trials? Have there not been struggles? And has not that taught us to not be looking always to the gift, but to look to the giver? And realize he does give us gifts sometimes that are hard to understand and receive. But that's still not the end of the road of growth. No, no, we have to move beyond just loving God for his gifts and Beyond just looking at him and saying what a majestic and wonderful God he is, but he also wants us to move one step further, and that is to give our lives to what he gave his life for, to let the things that break his heart break our heart, the things that are on his heart become ours. He wants to see if we will adopt his passion for the world. That is the ultimate place of love. That's what Jesus struggled with in the Garden of Gethsemane. Would he love his father? Would he surrender to his father in heaven to adopt the plan and the passion of the heavenly father? And there is great joy. There is great blessing when we come to that place and say, my life is the Lord's and his passion is my passion and I want to serve him. Now, how do you know what your passion is? You know what your passion is. It's because that's what you dream about. When you're in your, putting your head down at night and you're kind of dreaming about the, what do you dream about? That'll tell you what your passion is. Uh, what do you sing about? You know, when people are in love, they're singing songs and writing poetry. Do you do you sing about the Lord? Is there a song in your heart to Christ? And what is it that makes you cry? Most of us cry because we pity ourselves. Most of us cry because we're in pain. Seldom do we cry for the world that lies in darkness at our very feet. I had the privilege of preaching in, in Stavanger, Norway, a few years ago to a mixed crowd of Iranians and Norwegians, and I preached in Persian, and an Iranian translated into Norwegian. I have no idea... Wow. What my translator said, but it must have been pretty good, because <laughs> people seemed to respond. At the end of the message, as I had talked about Iran and talked about what the Christians are going through there, a Norwegian pastor came forward, and he said, "Tat, I just want to pray for the people of Iran." I said, "That's a great thing. Come on up." And he, as he got behind the pulpit, he just began to convulse in tears and weeping, it like it was just coming out from the very depth of his soul. And the other Norwegians had to come and pray for this guy and calm him down. And finally, when he composed himself, he said, Tat, as you were talking about the people of Iran, as you were talking about these millions of people living in darkness who do not know the love of Christ, who live under the fear of a God who judges them and condemns them, he said, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon me and broke my heart for these people. Now the amazing thing was there was about 15 Muslims in that setting. And as those Muslims were leaving the service, every one of them said, I want a Bible. And I said, why? They said, we've lived in Norway five, ten years, and not once did a Norwegian person ever weep for us. And it was his weeping for these Muslim people that triggered their deep interest in the gospel and the message that we have. Well, the writer of Psalm 42, to me, has a real grasp on how passion works. Passion, of course, means... Literally, that which you are willing to die for. That which you're willing to sacrifice for. We call it the passion of our Lord. It means it was the time that he laid everything on the line for his heavenly father. And so passion means that giving of all you have. What is it that moves you? Well, in Psalm 42, we have this scene of, of the psalmist observing deer in the wild. And these deer either were going through... Uh, drought times, possibly, or they were being pursued by hunters. But one thing is clear. They are desperately thirsty. They are desperately thirsty. And they are seeking water above everything else. And here's the first thing you learn about your passion. Your passion arises out of what you think you desperately need most. What do you think you desperately Need the most. I meet people constantly from Iran who tell me that they have been desperate to meet the one true God. They are disgusted and turned off by this government of theirs that presents to them people in spiritual leadership that are uh, uh, crooks, that are power hungry, that are immoral, and so they're hungry. One day, my phone rang when I was living in Washington, D.C., and an Iranian man said, You are my last hope. We pastors don't like to get that kind of a call. You are my last hope because we know what's coming. And he said, I have been looking for a Bible in my language for 10 years, and I've not found one. Some of you could probably find your Bibles real fast, I'm sure. He didn't have one. And I said, Where do you live? He said, I live over in Virginia. I said, You've waited 10 years? I can't keep you waiting another day. Give me your address and I'll bring you a Bible right now. So I ran my car, and drove about an hour over to Virginia, found this guy. He wasn't sitting in his house. He was pacing in the street waiting for me. And I'd never seen him before, but here he was, an Iranian gentleman. He said, tomorrow I'm going back to Iran. You're, this is the last hope. This is the last chance. And so I get out of the car and he grabs me and, you know, Muslim and iran middle eastern people they 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 give a kiss and so he hugged me and he gave a kiss and then i handed him the bible and he took the bible and he kissed it and he pressed it to his chest and he said you have given me the whole world and i prayed with him and i left and it wasn't until three years later when i was preaching in the church iranian church in london that i found that man he was there at that time he'd come to christ And he came up and gave me another hug as a brother. You see, he had a passion to find the word of God. He was fed up and disillusioned with life in this world. And he wanted to know God. Your passion arises out of what you feel you need the most. Now, when we go back to the deer analogy, you know, when these deer, they get the scent of water. You, can't, you, you better not be, be standing between them and the water because they are zeroed in like radar on that scent and they're going for that water. And every other concern, every other need is pressed aside. So your passion reveals what is preeminent in your life, what is most important to you. That's what your passion is. I, I, if I spent a half an hour with you, I probably could find out what your passion is, what is what's most important to you in all of your life. Well, Dr. Nouri, which his name means light, incidentally, was a professor uh, at the University of Tehran. He taught world literature. And about 15 years ago, he came to the Washington, D.C. area, and he discovered that his daughter had become a Christian in our Iranian church, and I had baptized her, so he wasn't really very happy with me. He thought I had somehow, uh, uh, somehow brainwashed her into becoming a Christian. So he comes to church. He was kind of an eccentric guy with a, a, a long white ponytail. I can still see him, and he sat on the front row, and he brought a big notebook. And I said, Dr. Nuri, I'm so glad you're taking notes. And he said, well, I don't know if you should be glad because I'm here to, to find out all your mistakes. I said, well, join the rest of the congregation. I get, little, I get little notes every Sunday about mistakes I make. It seems to be a hobby with some Christians. In any event, he was taking notes. And he sat there. He was there on time. You know, he sat there for six months as I preached. And he listened. And then one day I got this call. And he said, "Uh, Pastor Tad, I want you to baptize me. And I said, Dr. Noody, you know, fill me in. I, I mean, you were the guy here with all the mistakes. He said, well, a strange thing happened. He says, during this six months, I read the New Testament 80 times. Now, I don't know if you've read the whole New Testament in the last year or not. But I hope you have because here was a Muslim man who read it 80 times in six months. Now, let me tell you something. If you read the New Testament 80 times in six months, it's more likely it will change you than you will change it. And so he was very much impacted by that. He said, I came home from church, and I fell asleep on the couch, and I had a vision of the Lord. And that vision of the Lord, as I saw the Lord, everything that I had read in the Bible all of a sudden made sense and then he began to preach to me over the phone, and I said, Dr. Nuri, we can stop this. Now, I've been preaching to you for six months. I understand that you believe now. So his baptismal day came, and uh, when we baptize a Muslim, we ask them to bring all their family, all their relatives, and we, we give them a chance to share a testimony, and some of these testimonies go on for a half an hour. In, in the culture that I live, uh, time means nothing, but I, I promise you that I'm, I, will, I will stick to relatively our time constraints today. And so Dr. Nuri uh, gets baptized, and as soon as, as, soon as he come, you know, he was kneeling, as soon as he stands up, he announces to the whole congregation, I want to be commissioned right now as a missionary back to Iran. And uh, I was a little taken aback by it, but I said, I, I don't mind praying, and I, I realized he got it right. When, when, you, when you rise from your baptism, you are commissioned to be a missionary. You are commissioned to serve. This is not a special category of people. The problem was his Muslim wife was sitting on the last row. And when he said that, she said, honey, you can't go to Iran. And he said, oh, yeah, I sure can. And so now we have a domestic argument going on in the middle of the church service. And sometimes you have to do pastoral care. This is the way Iranian church works. And so, uh, and then she said, well, if you go to Iran, they'll kill you. And he said, it would be a great honor to die for Christ. What a great way to go out with a blaze of glory and die for Jesus. And so after we calmed that domestic crisis down, Pastor Nuri went back to Iran. And I had a letter from him after three or four months, and he said, Tat, this is the greatest mission field in the world. I gathered all my old buddies that used to teach at the University of Tehran, about, 10, about 12 of us. And he said, six of them have already given their lives to Christ, and the other six are studying seriously the Word of God. And that was out of the fact that when Dr. Nuri came to Christ, His passion for Jesus, his passion for shedding the gospel, just seemed to be programmed right in him at the very beginning. So the power of passion comes out of this. Your passion arises out of your sense of need. Your passion reveals what's preeminent in your life. And your passion is your greatest influence on others. You see, you can talk to your blue, to your children and your grandchildren, but they have these little antennas up. And they're listening to what really is your passion. That playing that golf game is the most important thing in your life. Uh, Going to a certain store, getting certain things, they, they pick it all up, and there's nothing wrong with all these activities, but they pick up the passion, and they pick up the lack of passion for the things of God, if that is your case. Now, my mother was a passionate woman. She raised six kids on the mission field, and many times when we were having family prayers, she would say, Lord, send these six kids to the six continents of the world. And, uh, and, and those were days that we were pretty good. You know, you should have heard the prayers when we weren't good. And one day, I went up to my mom and I said, Mom, don't you like us? You know, I mean, you're, you're praying us all over the world. And the tears came out of her eyes. And she said, Tat, I love you kids. But the most wonderful, life-fulfilling experience... That I've had is to take the gospel to another culture. I want the best for my kids. I want my children to experience. We have one life to live. It flies by. I want my kids to, to have something in their life that will be as rewarding as it was for me to take the gospel to the people of Iran. Well, we, are, we have served on four continents already. And we get a little nervous when someone brings up another continent. Because uh, mom, mom was a prayer warrior. And we know her prayers are still still being answered. And so your, pa- your passion is your greatest influence on others. And your passion, and this is very important, your passion will always shape your purpose. You will always find a way to do what your passion is. If you have this passion you'll you'll just you'll just move you know you'll just move heaven and earth to get to what you want to do in your life and isn't it fantastic when that passion is to serve Christ and to use your life for his glory, whether it be in your local church on the mission field wherever he will call you well now the question comes of course, how do I get this passion to you? You're talking about it. You had a mother praying for it. I didn't have a mother praying for it. I didn't have a father praying for it. How do you get this passion? And very simply, this passion is caught from God. You you, you can't manufacture it. You can't produce it. You can't package it. You can't buy it at Walmart. All you can do is seek it and pray for it. But here's the deal. So many of us are not seeking it. So many of us are not knocking on the gates of heaven saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill me with your passion. And when I was growing up, I didn't understand why my father and mother were so passionate for the things of God. That they would forsake a lucrative life in the United States and live in what we would consider poverty today in the part of Iran and serving the people of Iran. I didn't understand it. And we'd come home on furloughs. And I'd see my, my, my fellow students driving around in their new Mustangs. And wearing nice clothes. And I had clothes out of the missionary barrel. And I was kind of upset with my dad. You know, that he didn't stay here as a doctor. And make a lot of money. And buy me a car when I was 16. The dream that so many of us American kids have. And so I decided to, to research what happened in my dad's life. That he would give up America to go live in Iran uh, over 65 years ago. And so I discovered through research that when my dad was born, they were twins, and the first twin was stillborn. And he was premature, and they weren't sure he was going to live. And there was an uncle in our family at that time who'd been converted under Billy Sunday, and he was one of these guys, you know, that really really believed in prayer. One of those strange people, you know, that really believes in praying and prayer. You've met some of those people. And so he... They called him to pray for this little baby because there were no incubators. They were not the kind of things that we have today. And this man came and he put his hands on this little baby and he prayed he said, Heavenly Father, if you just spare this child, if you just heal this child, I consecrate him to Afghanistan. Now, I don't think God hears too many prayers like that. You know, we ask for the healing, but we don't consecrate our children normally to Afghanistan. I'm not even sure he knew where Afghanistan was. He probably was the furthest place in the world that he could think about, but the Holy Spirit led him. And my grandparents were afraid to tell my dad that he was being raised for Afghanistan, <laughs> so they didn't tell him. But when he got to be sixth, sixth grade, seventh grade, every time he saw a picture of Afghan people in the magazines, Time magazine, Life magazine, he cut them out. He started making scrapbooks. And where other kids were collecting, you know, Phillies baseball cards, he was collecting pictures of Afghanistan, all these black and, black and white old pictures. I remember finding the book. And so when he finished his military duty uh, after World War II, and he and my mom uh, were together again, I, I was a brand new baby, they went to the mission board, and they said, we want to go to Afghanistan as missionaries, and the mission board laughed and said, where have you been? Afghanistan will not tolerate any missionaries. You can't go there. But Iran is looking for medical doctors. Would you consider that? And so my father said, okay, that's next door. I'll take it. And he spent 20 years in Iran directing a hospital, 50-bed hospital. And then when that hospital closed, he got his heart's desire. He got to move to Kabul, Afghanistan. And during the Russian occupation, my mom ran the guest house in Kabul. And my dad was in seventh heaven training Afghan doctors how to make prosthesis for all these poor Afghan men whose limbs had been blown up by the Russians. And he spent a number of years there. And it was what, what he had been prayed to do. It was his passion. And if you go to my dad now, who's 95 years old, he's got pictures of the Afghan people. There was an incredible, incredible God-given love for the Afghan people. And that's the passion that God gives. When you talk to missionaries, they have a strange way of saying, I have come to love the people. The Turners, who you support, came out of Church of the Atonement. I used to play basketball with Rob Turner when he was in junior high. And he has a love for the Turkish people. This is what God does. He gives us a burden and a passion for particular people. But this passion is caught from God. And this passion can also be caught from God's people. Sometimes missionaries that come You've noticed they get a little bit passionate sometimes. And sometimes their passion touches people. My mother was 12 years old sitting in a little Lutheran church in Trenton, New Jersey when a single woman missionary came back from China. And she told about the adventures of living in China and serving Christ there. And my mother, at the age of 12, said, I heard the call in my heart to be a missionary. I wanted to do what that lady did. The passion is often conveyed through missionaries that come to visit and then the passion is caught from god's work you see people who are involved in ministry have passion uh saturday morning listening to the members of your church that go to camp joy with tears in their eyes talking about the experiences that god gave them as they reached out beyond their comfort zone Listening to those that went on the Appalachian projects from your church. You see, it's, it's always the people that are actually doing the ministry that have the passion. It's those that, that don't reach out, don't go past their comfort zones, don't, don't do anything. They're the ones that are often passive and uninvolved passionately. So the call is to ask God for that passion. The call is to step out during this period of revitalization of your congregation and see what God wants you to do. And if it begins with just a commitment of a time each day to pray, to pray for the ministry of this pulpit, to pray for the Sunday school classes, to pray that young people from this church are touched by the Holy Spirit, then do that. But understand that those who are involved in the ministry have this passion because they see God at work. I saw a revival among the young people of Iran in 1980 where 97 young people all committed their lives to Christ and committed their lives to service. And those 97 are the current pastors of the Iranian church, which were all part of my youth group. And just seeing that what God did when I was in Iran in 1979 and 1980 during the hostage crisis and seeing what God did profoundly touched my heart. So I close with this simple thing. You say, Tat, you know, it's interesting. You can talk about all this, but, you know, what am I really supposed to do? And I just close with what God told Moses. Remember, God came to Moses. He was 80 years old, and he was studying his retirement portfolio. He was planning his uh, last years of life to be filled with, you know, nice trips uh, along uh, with his sheep here and there, and God interrupted that. And, you know, I think he thought, I'm 80 years old. I put my time in. God, what are you bothering me? And God started telling him what he wanted to do. And, and Moses, he, you know, he had excuses. I mean, if you want to go back and look at Exodus, he had excuses that I've never even thought of yet. But, uh, but uh, I'm certainly going to borrow his at times. And so he gave all these excuses. And finally God says, now, Moses, Moses, I don't want to hear these excuses. I just got a question for you. For me? Yeah, for you. I, 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 um. What's in your hand, Moses? Well, there's this dirty old staff, you know, I've been picking lions with and and, and herding sheep with all these years. He said, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, and miraculously, it changes into a serpent, doesn't it? And he says, pick it up. And if you follow Moses' career, you know he held that staff in his hand and the amazing things that God did. it. And here is the question that God is asking each and every one of us in this room. He said, I don't want to hear your excuses. I don't want you to tell me you're too old. I don't want you to tell me you're tired, your feet hurt. I don't want to hear that. All I want to hear is this. What is in your hand, brother and sister? What is in your hand? You have time? You can pray. You have wealth? You can give. You have gifts? You can serve. The important question for every one of us in this room who claim that we are followers of Jesus Christ is to hear what God says, what's in your hand, and throw it at my feet. And throw it at my feet. Throw it at my feet. And I will use your life. I will give you passion. And your life will influence generations to come. Let's pray.